Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you. For I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. I have a few visuals for us here today. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Eric, and uh, I'm going to be starting off a five-week series called The Five Questions That Matter. Now, this is a, a great series that I am, I've been excited about because I am a notorious question asker. I love to ask questions, and I am an annoying question asker. Some of you know that by experience. Listen, when you, like maybe you were in high school or college, do you remember that when the time was getting close to you being dismissed, if you're in high school, maybe there was a bell, we had an actual bell, and there's like 30 seconds left, and some, your classmates are sitting there, like one butt cheek is out of the seat, ready, like everyone's ready to go, 30 seconds left, so the teacher, the professor, they say, does anyone, before we go, does anyone have any last minute questions? Guess who raised their hand? I have a question, and it's usually a question that needs a longer answer than the 30 seconds that everybody, that everybody has. And of course, everyone despises me in that setting for asking a question. But I love asking questions. And you know what? Asking questions has been central to my faith. Not only has been, continues to be, but will be always a central part of me living out my faith and growing in my relationship with God. And that's what I love about having a relationship with Jesus. We are free to ask questions. In fact, Jesus in, in Matthew 7, 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find, knock, and the door will be open for you. And it's like we're this permission, this invitation to keep asking because Jesus is there with the answer. How else are we going to continue to learn and soak in the, the, God's nature and character of who he is and, and learn more about what it means to live out a relationship with God if we don't ask, if we don't take on that posture of learning and, and asking and seeking and, and knocking? As a pastor, I've learned something. You know who asks the best questions about God? Kids do. In fact, I, I have a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. The two-year-old doesn't ask questions uh, of that nature uh, right now. But my seven-year-old, he asks amazing questions about God. And a lot of times, I'm stumped. I've been stumped more times by kids and their questions than adults. And I know that you could probably say the same thing. Uh, I was curious. I, I snuck my way onto the, the women's ministry page of our, our Facebook page, our church's Facebook page, 
and I just asked, I'd love to learn some, just hear from you, what are some really great questions that your kids ask uh, about God? And I got some amazing responses. A lot of them had to do with God's very nature, God's character. Just a simple question, who is God? Can you imagine yourself getting confronted with that question? Mommy, Daddy, who is God? You know, where do you begin answering that question? Or I love this other one. Who made God? Uh, this is a funny one. If God is love, I want to know who the kid that did this. If God is love and God made everything, does God love the devil too? And by the way, listen, if there's a question that you can't answer, that's not permission to delegate that question to the pastor, okay? I've had so many parents bring their child to me and say, hey, so, you know, Johnny has a little question for you. Yeah, little question, okay. <laughs> I struggle with it too. A lot of questions about God's abilities. We know this one very well, even as adults. Why didn't he answer my prayer? How do you explain that to a child? Why does God let bad things happen to me? I think we've asked that before, haven't we? I love this one. Why does he make it rain and ruin our outdoor plans? <laughs> All kinds of questions. Another one I love, how do we know heaven is for real? How do you go about explaining those, those types of things? And it's those questions. Now, because I said so, it doesn't work in general for me, but even if you were to, to answer in those because I said so, because that's what we believe, a lot of kids are not satisfied with that. They want a real answer. I love those questions. I think we should have a church that just gives permission, just fosters that question-asking culture amongst our kids. Because as, as it said in the scripture in Matthew 7, God is in that. Jesus is right behind that door when we invite our kids to continue to, to knock. And so uh, today, I want to tackle a question um, that may not make resonate with you uh, right away, but as I go along, I'm sure that this, it's going to hit home to you a little bit. And the question is, which are the rules, what are the rules that actually matter? We're going to talk about that nature of the rules, and specifically in Matthew chapter 15, um, because the, the rules, the expectations comes up. This is a question that's brought to Jesus. Now let me set the scene a little bit for you. Jesus had just got done doing two significant miracles, uh, some that you might, uh, you might remember. The one is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, they were on the hillside and Jesus takes um, five loaves and two fishes and, and everyone has plenty to, to eat. Did I just say fishes? Fish. Okay, my father-in-law is a fisherman. He's going to kill me for that. I like fishes anyways. We'll go with it. Five loaves, two fish. And then after the miracle, Jesus needs to spend some time uh, by himself to pray. And so he sends the disciples out on the boat. Just, here, I'll, I'll catch up with you. Now, if I'm the disciple, I'm kind of wondering, okay, well, how, how are you going to do that? Well, Jesus had something in mind. He was going to walk out on the water to go and, and meet up with them. And so we have these two significant miracles, and then they arrive on the, on the shore of a village called Genesaret. Genesaret's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, at least if you don't know the geography, you know it as a significant place throughout Jesus' ministry. And so they arrive there, and what we find is that Jesus is already popular. 
People already know and have heard about Jesus' supernatural abilities. And so they bring their, 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 their sick, everyone that's in need of healing, they go and they're looking for Jesus to, to touch and to, to heal them. Now Jesus' notoriety also reached all the way to Jerusalem. And so what we find is that two religious scholars Two of the religious elite from Jerusalem, scribes and Pharisees, two different types, I should say, not just two people, but two different types of scribes and the Pharisees make their way all the way from Jerusalem specifically to encounter Jesus. Now, this is what we're going to have, and we're going to find in a lot of these questions are t- questions in order to test Jesus, but we learned something from that. Now, if, if, if you were encountered with Jesus, if you had one question to ask I wonder, what would it be? I mean, have you thought about that scenario? What's that one question, if you had a chance to ask Jesus, what, what's that one question you would ask? And this is where we get a little bit of what was going on in the mind of the first century Jewish religious elite. They had all of this stuff going on in their mind. And they confront Jesus uh, with this question here in, in verse two of chapter 15. Why do your disciples... Break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands before they eat. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, they're really concerned about personal hygiene in this place. They must be a bunch of germaphobes. They're worried about the disciples and them not washing, washing their hands be, before they eat. Now, obviously, that's, there's a little bit more going on because their main concern is what we see in there, breaking the tradition of the elders, breaking the expectations that the elders had had set forth for them. And all of this comes from a law that wasn't really originally commanded for all the people. It was commanded for just the priests. And what they would do is they would come to have this ritual cleansing, this this purity brought to them. And they come and they bring their hands out like this. And then someone would ladle some holy water, clean cleansing water, over their hands. And it would drip off. And it was sort of symbolic, but also just this idea that the the waters, the the sacred waters were washing off the dirt. And and once it dripped all the way off their elbows and their wrists, that was a sign to them that they were clean. That was the law that was, was, was prescribed for them, but for the priests. But time went along, and they just thought maybe it was a general rule for everybody. Now, for some of you germaphobes out there, <clears throat> Pastor Steve, you know, we, uh, you might say to yourself, okay, tradition, you know, fair enough, but this is a good rule, right? We, we can't pick on this. This is, a, this is a probably a, a good thing to have. Everybody should be washing their hands and, and taking part uh, in this. But Jesus knows that there's something deeper going on in the heart of the Pharisees as they are um, confronting him. Because what, essentially what they're saying is why are you not following the rules? Why are you not following the rules? And what that reveals is something that I think we struggle with at times and is how we understand living out faith. It's easy, I think, sometimes, and those of you that have been, you know, in church a long time, you've been reading about this big rivalry and opposition between Jesus and the Pharisees, and you say, yeah, Jesus rebelled against the religious institution. Jesus was a a rebel. He wasn't about playing rules, and we often sort of idolize that, that aspect of Jesus. And and in that, we we forget that we all have rules, don't we? (laughs) 
We all have rules in any given relationship. You have rules in your house. You have rules at work. You have rules at school. Everybody has rules. When you get more than one person there, you have to have rules. You have to have some sort of guidelines so that everyone can get along and it's not chaos, right? We bring order through our rules, our expectations. Sometimes rules come in the form of traditions or predictable patterns that we set Maybe they're not written out rules, but we follow them just because that's how things go in these, these parts. And the same is true for church. Even the most cutting edge Jesus freak people that you could find with smoke machines and the whole thing on their stage, they all have traditions. They all have predictable patterns that they create in living out faith that, that set up expectations for what people should be doing and, and what people shouldn't be doing. We all have them. In my house, I have a bunch of these. I have a two-year-old, and, and, and these are important. I put them in front of the upstairs and put them in front of the downstairs. And we put them up there so that my two-year-old daughter can remain safe, unharmed. And if I'm honest, we put them in certain areas so that our things would remain safe and unharmed from this hurricane of a child. Because you never know what might get destroyed when she makes her way into a particular area of, of the house. These are good things. The rules and the orders and the expectations we create are meant to preserve, meant to help people flourish, to protect us from, from potential harm. And so there really is, on one hand, not a whole lot wrong with what the Pharisees are doing it and where the Pharisees are, are coming from. In fact, the whole Pharisee movement came out of this idea of protecting themselves. A couple hundred years before Jesus, the God's people, the, the, the nation of Israel was under attack. And there was a, a foreign leader that came in and attacked the people and took over. And because he got mad at the people, he decided to ransack and desecrate the temple. And this violation of their sacred law and their sacred building was, uh, uh, caused a rebellion. There was a, a guerrilla warfare going on uh, with some of the, uh, a, a group of Jewish leaders. And they fought back against this invading army and they were successful. And through that, I, through that reestablishing of their, of their control and, and of their order as a people, they said, you know, We've been a little too lax when it comes to the order of our faith. We've been a little too uh, casual in our approach to the law and to what we're expecting of people. So we need to, we need to double down on this. And so what was once a law for several things turned into a tradition for everything. And they began to focus and hyper-focus on the rules and the guardrails and, and the expectations that everyone should have if they're going to be a part of the people of God. The do's and the don'ts, the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. And that's how the Pharisee movement came out. They were the enforcers of all this, they, and they were the modelers of all of this. We don't get this picture necessarily from the scriptures because Jesus often battled against the, the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were revered and honored and well-loved by all the people. 
They were the ones seen as having it down pat. They were the ones that were truly, in their minds, living out what it truly meant to be a person of faith in that day. And yet there's a pitfall in their approach, a blind spot, and they didn't see it coming, and it took Jesus to point it out that whatever baby gates they had put up for themselves to guard and to protect and to um, keep themselves from harm, those baby gates had become prison bars. Can you imagine my daughter's being 16 years old and we still have the baby gates up? (laughs) These guardrails, these barriers, these rules, these expectations, they serve a greater purpose. They're meant for proper growth and flourishing for an individual. And when we focus more on what the boundaries are and not the purpose for which the boundaries exist, we turn into a Pharisee. And nobody wants to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. That's what I learned when I was a kid. (laughs) Youth got that one. They loved it. Thanks, guys. Pity laugh. All right. So... We, turn, we easily turn into the same thing when we, when we focus on the rules. So Jesus uh, responds, and he points out, first of all, their hypocrisy, that they are actually elevating their own man-made traditions over the very word of God. So he picks an example of honoring your father and, and your mother and, and how they were not living up to that, how their tra- tradition was actually uh, contradicting the, 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 the law that had, was stated for them. So he points that out, but he, drive, he goes quickly into something that's more important. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, 13. In verse 8, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This pe- people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I'd like to spend some time kind of picking apart this one phrase to see if we can understand a little bit more what it means and why Jesus said it to those particular people and why Jesus might be saying it to us today. Their hearts are far from me. First, he addresses the matter of the heart, the matter of what is inside the heart. Uh, In 2012, there was this big controversy between Christians, mostly between the evangelical side and the mainline side, and evangelicals through that time, and I was actually exposed to this as well, evangelicals during that time, they they became, uh, they had this sort of common phrase that actually isn't quoting scripture at all, but there's this common phrase, and people would speak to it as if it were God's word, and they'd say, it's not a religion, Christianity is not a religion, it's a It's a relationship. And they would talk about that. And there was this young guy, he decided to put out a rap video on YouTube about it. And it went viral. And uh, his name was, um, oh, what's his name? Jefferson Betke, that's right. He has called himself Spoken Word. And the, the title of it was, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. It went viral. Well, it caused kind of a controversy. Because there are a lot of religious people in the Christian faith. And so that begged a response from a guy named Father Pontifex. I don't think that's his real name. And he had a little rap of his own with his collar and everything. He said, why I love religion and love Jesus. 
And this was really fascinating to see how people see the faith, how people view the faith, and how that viewpoint, that belief, and the construct of how they see it uh, influences how people would, would live out the faith. But I have to be honest, as I looked at all of this, this back and forth, these conversations, I kind of got a little annoyed. <laughs> because here's the thing, Jesus never sought to demolish the rules. In fact, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus himself was a follower of the law. Jesus never dismantles the idea that there are rules in general. But what we do find in the course of relationship with God, in the course of living out faith, in the course of, of being a Christian, there's those of us that have follow the rules in order to have a deeper relationship with God, and there are those of us who simply just have a relationship with the rules. And that's the difference between the Pharisees and what Jesus was getting at. Do we have a relationship with God, or do we have a relationship with the rules? There was a question about the rules that came up to Jesus and he, in Matthew 22, he quotes a popular saying that everybody knew in that day. It was almost a hymn, uh, a part of a hymn that people would re, uh, refrain all the time in their worship services. It's called the Shema, and Jesus quotes a part of it. And he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. The Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 actually says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your strength. It doesn't include the mind. And the reason is because in the ancient Hebrew language, the word lave meant both the heart and the mind. They saw it as one interconnected thing. Isn't that interesting? We often think of our head, we, you know, we say we think with our head or we think with our heart and we have a disconnection there. In the ancient Hebrews, they saw it as one and the same. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Mind, body, and spirit. Love the Lord your God. And then he says, and then love the, your neighbor as yourself. And they said, all of the law hangs on these two things. And so if there's a question of what, which rules matter to us in the debate as to, well, what does God really care about if I follow the rules here and follow the rules there? God's saying, love God, love your neighbor. All of the law hangs on those two things. And so if you are in, 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 in fulfilling these, then you're in line with God. If you're in violation of these, then you're in violation with God's will. And I wonder sometimes, God, are you sure you want to make it that simple? Because we like to make it complicated and we like to fight over it. When I was a young Christian, I was a freshman at Bowling Green State University, I was the worst Christian you could ever meet. I had a relationship with the rules, and it was all cover for an empty shell of a relationship with God, and I didn't realize that until much later. I can remember one time in, amongst my friends in our campus ministry, there was a young woman who was a part of our campus ministry and, and she decided that she was going to move in with her, with her boyfriend. 
And in response to that, even though I was just an acquaintance, (laughs) even though I didn't really know her except through our worship services, I thought it was my job, my duty, my God-given duty to do something about this and to let them know, even though they had friends, they had pastors, they had all of these people around them to listen to their story, to hear them out, to guide them, to pray for them. I thought that it was my job to enforce the rules. And so I confronted this young lady in public in front of all of our different friends. And I couldn't understand why all those friends that I worshiped with suddenly were banding against me because of how I was treating her. And I didn't realize until two years later, when I moved away, I was a student in Europe for a year, and I realized after leaving the bubble that was the Christian faith that I had created for myself, and I was finally all alone, I realized that I didn't have much of a relationship with God. I had been living out a relationship with, with the rules, and I didn't understand the difference between those two things. And so through a lot of loneliness and some poor decisions, I became the person I had been judging against. And it was in that that God came and visited me with his grace and taught me a precious lesson about what it means to have a relationship with God, a living, vibrant, flourishing relationship with God as opposed to a relationship with the rules where I was so focused on what those gates and those boundaries were. A little visual that was helpful, me, helpful for me one time in the way that I used to view the faith is that in the center of the Christian life, we have God, and I'll use a cross to indicate God, and that there are all these people that were having, seeking to have a relationship with God. And so I'm going to draw these people with these little things. These are people. They're not birds, okay? I just don't have time to do. I'm actually not a good artist anyway. So these are people. But around God is a boundary. This is called the bounded set model of understanding the faith. And under this, with this understanding, the focus is not the center, which is God. The focus is the boundary. Whether or not I've been able to get over the boundary, whether or not I've been able to stay in the boundary, (laughs) whether or not this person or that person or the other person has been able to jump over the fence into the boundary so that they could be in the club. And when, when I had a relationship with the rules, the boundary became the center point. The boundary became the obsession. And it stunted my growth. I was a grown-up living with baby gates because I was so focused on the do's and the don'ts. Jesus offers us a different model. Not a dismantling of the rules or the ordered life of the congregation, but offers us a different model where Jesus remains at the center. This is why he says that their hearts are far to the Pharisees. Their hearts are far because they built a relationship with the rules and were hyper-focused on the boundaries. They could not journey any more closer to Christ. 
in relationship with him. Jesus says their hearts are far from me. And Jesus is the fullest expression of who God is. And that in seeking a relationship with God, we have a relationship with God through very extension through our, 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 our relationship with Jesus. John 1.18 says this, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Their hearts are far from me. Jesus is the one to be at the center. It's Jesus with whom we have a relationship. And that's why we use an illustration here to help people understand the journey of faith and the progression of faith. And we use an illustration called the four chairs. And uh, we have, uh, and you've seen this maybe on the other end of our building, uh, four actual chairs and those explanations. And that blue one is the Exploring Christ chair. And we are a congregation. We're at inviting people to ask questions and people that are just still sort of figuring things out. And you may not even say that you're a Christian yet, um, but you're just sort of figuring it out. And we want you to be here and we want you to ask those questions. But then let's say that uh, you invite Christ into your heart and you feel and sense and experience the transformation that comes in having a relationship with Jesus. And so now we see you in the growing in Christ chair. You're sitting in that, isn't that a nice chair? That's a it's supposed to be a little more of a comfy chair. And you sit in that chair and you soak it in and you grow in your faith and your relationship with God. But as God continues to move you closer, we have the stool, which is the close to Christ chair. Now the stool is less comfortable as you can see because sometimes, no, it's always uncomfortable when we follow Jesus deeper and deeper, more and more because it takes us out of our own comfort zones. And then finally, we have the Christ-centered chair. And all of this is a progression of proximity. That the more we journey from one chair to the next, the closer we get to Jesus, where Jesus becomes the center. That's why we call it the Christ-centered chair. And by the way, I have a little joke, I have a little running joke that if you proclaim to have, be sitting in the Christ-centered chair, you get doctor chair uh, by, by, uh, automatically. Because um, those people that are Christ-centered probably don't brag about being and sitting in the Christ-centered chair. But it's a progression of closeness. Jesus is drawing us and inviting us closer. Even though the Pharisees came to attack Jesus and to accuse Jesus, even though we have sort of this oppositional interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, in that I see also an invitation where Jesus, in accusing them that their hearts are far from them, is, is, is reordering the understanding of faith to say, I want you to be close. The goal is for you to be closer and closer and not to stand at a distance in your legalism. Draw closer to me. James 4, 8 testifies to this. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is our invitation here this morning. It is an invitation to put aside our relationship with the rules, not the rules themselves, but our relationship with the rules, to be open to see where God might be taking us, to see where he might be inviting us, welcoming us in closer and closer to him. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's uh, maybe different than what we had previously known 
in terms of what the faith looks like. But Jesus, in his still small voice, come, draw closer to me, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Would you hear that call? Would you hear the invitation that Jesus makes to each of us? Draw closer, closer. Put away your gates, your boundaries, your guardrails, just for a second, and hear the voice to get close. Let's pray together. Holy God, thank you for your holy invitation, this divine invitation, Lord God, that is so filled with grace and love that whatever we have done, whoever we have been, your grace is more than that. And so, God, we lay ourselves down. Yes, our faults and our failures and our weaknesses, we lay all that down. But, Lord, even sometimes those things that we've been using as masks, those, those rules and those legalisms that we've been using as a front for maybe an insecurity or a lack of relationship with you. So, God, we lay all of that aside to hear your invitation to draw close. Lord, whatever that next step is in drawing closer to you, I pray, God, that, it would, that we would hear your call and we would take that step, that we would have boldness and courage to take that step, that we would allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to take that step. And this is how you've called your people to be. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So um, I'm going to have uh, Pastor Jim and Pastor Steve come up. Um, many of you know we, we have this long-standing ministry event for young people called Youth Explosion, and uh, it has just been so just a blessing for us. And uh, Pastor Jim and Pastor Steve want to say a few words about Youth Explosion. Well, many of you uh, probably know that uh, this is Pastor Jim Davis, and it's been my privilege to work alongside and to continue to work alongside Pastor Jim over the next uh, few years, but Pastor Jim is our pastor of student ministries. Uh, as you know, being a pastor of student ministries can be wearing and, and difficult. Uh, look at him. Jim's only 26 years old. <laughs> so Jim's going to share with us at this time. Hey, folks, it is great to be with you this morning. I, I, we're going to talk just briefly with you about Youth Explosion. Uh, there is going to be a 30th year. This is our 30th year of Youth Explosion. It's been incredible. It's been great. Uh, first, I want to just, I really want to thank our congregation because many of you have been with us the long haul, many of the last several years, but the, the time and the hours it takes for, for so many of you as volunteers to, to pull this thing off each year, and, and it's been incredible. And I am so humbled by the fact that we, our church has gotten behind this thing, the wear and tear in the building, and all the volunteer help has been incredible. Uh, it's been so successful with, with reaching students for Jesus. It's unbelievable. I, I really am. I'm just, I'm in awe of what, how God's uh, used me through, through uh, Youth Explosion. Um, and, and so we did start it about 30 years ago, and, and I just all want to say this too. We've had Pretty much it's been 1,000 to, uh, to, to 1,400 over the years. And, um, and, and I also want to just put a shout-out to my wife. She was in the last service, but I just want to say that it's been really, it's, it's a lot of work. And, and she's been uh, by my side the whole time, even when, uh, rearing all three of our kids. And actually, this is our, 
this is our 30th year for this. It's also our 30th year anniversary for Tammy and I. So she's been with every, every step of the way as well with Youth Explorers, and so I'm excited for that. But this is, this is going to be our final year of Youth Explosion this year. You know, and I, I know there's been rumors and people have been, you know, about a few months ago, I finally decided we just need to move on and see what else God has for us. But in the process of this, you know, people are coming up to me, even in our denomination, coming, hey, so I hear you're retiring. You know, and in the church, a little rumble there. And so at staffing a few weeks ago, I had to ask, you know, Steve, is there something I don't know? <laughs> I'm not going anywhere, really, I'm not. And, and I love this church. I've been here for 33 years, and you're going to have to push me out of this. You hear me, Tom? Tom, you have to push me out this door to get rid of me, all right? He's probably going to try that. All right, listen. But, it's, but, but, but uh, honestly, guys, it's been a great one. So this year's theme is Mission Impossible. Our very first year we did in, in, uh, in, in 1987, which it's, you'll, you'll, you, when you add it up, it's not 30 years. It's more than that. So we did in 87. It was such a success. I stopped doing it for a couple years because I got freaked out because it was so successful the first year. I really was. I, I, just, I just backed off of it. And then we started up again in 1991 where Reggie Dabbs was our speaker. And uh, Reggie, again, is going to be in our final year as well, along with, uh, I've got him in 15 different schools leading up to Youth Exposure this year in November. And again, Youth Exposure is November 15th through the 17th. But, but as we move forward, it's Mission Impossible. The saga continues. I don't know what God has planned for the future of, of our, our church with teenagers as far as like a November event. But I'm hoping that the denomination might step up. Maybe Malone University steps up. Maybe we, we could still go on and do something else, but something different to see what God has for the next 30 years possibly for our students and through the ministry that we've had. This, this has been so successful with Youth Explosion. We'll see what he has there. But, but so, so just pray with us as we move forward. And we just got back. And, and some of you might be thinking, oh, my teenagers, what are they going to do? Without, you know, youth explosion, it's true, it's been so successful. But look at those teens over there. Majority of these teens over there, they went to camp this past week, and I'm telling you, we had a great time, a great spiritual experience as well as a lot of fun. So give them a hand too. They're, but pray for them. We would be up in the teen center, but, uh, and it's beautiful. You should see the remodel up there. It looks incredible. It's just a little warm up there this morning. But, but we'll work on that too. So that's why we're in here today. But, but it's great to have them here with us to even make this announcement. Also, I just want to say this. It has taken, last six years or so, about six years ago, we were down about 800 with youth explosion. I thought, gosh, God, I don't think you're done here yet. So God gave me a, I really do believe this, and he doesn't speak to me like this all the time, but I said, we were thinking it's $75 to go to youth explosion back in the day. And I, and I said, well, well, if I raised $20,000, we dropped the price to 55, our numbers might come up. And within two years, our numbers jumped back up over 1,000, close to 1,100 again. And it was incredible. So God really still blessed it. So again, this year, as I have the last six years, raising $20,000. If you know business people, whatever, let me know. I'll contact them. I'll encourage them, you know, to, to maybe donate to this year's Youth Exposure's final year. Because that also is a big help, too, if you could, you know, keep that in prayer for that support as well. And I also want to say one last thing that's really kind of cool. You know how we went on a mission trip a few weeks ago to... Uh, to Philadelphia, and I shared that with some of you, to our Hispanic friends. What camp this year, we had like over close to 50 Hispanic friends, students at camp out of the, 100, out of the 250 kids. And this year, I've got at least four or five churches, including Philadelphia, is coming to, and Philadelphia's never been to Youth Explosion. They're coming with us as well. So please pray for our Hispanic ministry too and the churches that are coming to be a part of that. So that's really exciting too to see what God's gonna do there. I just wanna thank you again. Thank you for the time. Please pray and a blessing. And see, God's got some great things happening. Wonder what it is, we'll just keep praying. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks, Jim.
I'm going to do this a little different than I did in the first service because I'm just should have done this. I'm just curious if you helped or assisted or did anything in that very first youth explosion, 1987, right? Is that, is that right? If, if, you just, if you were involved at all in that very first youth explosion, would you stand up? Is there, how many folks do we have here? Well, look at that. None of you over there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now keep standing, keep standing. Now, anybody else who's ever hosted, volunteered, been involved in youth explosion in any way, even if it's just for a little bit, could you stand? All right, yeah, yeah. Or attended, yes. Thank you. Now, would everybody, would you all stand? We want to close in prayer. In closing prayer for Pastor Jim, for our, for our teens, for our youth explosion coming up, and what God has in store for us to reach a next generation, because we are passionate about reaching, about reaching the youth and the teens, and we want to do that. We want God to lead us and direct us. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for our brother, and Lord, we pray. We thank you for the vision that you gave him uh, thirty some years ago. Now, Lord, and Lord, how it's flourished and how it's brought change and transformation in the lives of teens, and Lord, we pray that that would continue to happen, Lord, through this final youth explosion, that you would right now just, Lord, be with Reggie and all those who are going to speak and play. And Lord, those are coming. What a thrill and exciting it is to hear our Hispanic friends to be here. And Lord, we pray that, that this place would just be filled again, Lord. And Father, maybe for this last one, that, that we just really go out with a bang. And Lord, that but it would be the, the impact that's being made on the lives of individuals. And Lord, that out of this group this year, not just, not just kids would be transformed and see you, but Lord, we would see new um, pastors and missionaries and Lord, others that follow you and were in their place at work and Lord, that lead and direct Bible studies and, and teach and Lord, all these things that we would come through and Lord, we, we, we hear the testimonies all the time of someone saying, yeah, I remember coming to Youth Explosion. It changed my life. And so Lord, we thank you for that. But Lord, we also, we ask for your direction on what's next. Lord, these are new days, new times, new teens asking new questions. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek in a way that would that would minister to the youth of today in a, in a powerful, direct, and, and transformative way. And so, Father, we thank you. And we, we just pray that you would go before us, go before us this November, go before us into 2020. May, may Lord, what we... Um, hear from you. And Lord, the path that we take, be led by you. Lord, give us the courage to step and maybe into some deep waters. And Father, to maybe to bring along some partners with us. And Father, I, I know that Jim and Tammy have borne a heavy load. And we've got a lot of volunteers here that have borne heavy loads. So Father, I pray that this last year, that load would be light as we all come together, as we celebrate, as we rejoice in what you have done and what you're going to do. And we'll give you praise for all you do in Jesus' precious name, that powerful name, that wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Two quick things before you go. One, the books continue to be out there today. Uh, feel free to stop by, take them. A couple few have been added this week, so you can take as many as you want. Also, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday this week, the BNCA, uh, the the the. Uh, NC, National New Generation of uh, Christian Youth from Bhutan, Nepal. Those refugees are going to be here Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 400 to 700. If you say, boy, I'd really like to come and help out, just on your card, just mark, I'd like to help out with the conference this week. We'll get a hold of you, drop it in the box as you leave, and we appreciate that. Go this week, draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. And then sharing with somebody else who needs to be near to him. You're dismissed.